Amen. You may be seated. My name is Paul Joyner. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, I was thinking this morning, how it is a, it is a joy to have kids in worship, isn't it? Um, we really, one of, our, one of our core principles is that we are one family um, in Christ. Um, and families have children. Um, and it is good to have our children here um, with us. Well, if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting with verse 1. If you are visiting with us, we're so glad you're here. Um, if you would like to find out more about the church, uh, you can fill out one of the visitor cards in front of you. It is our regular practice to work through books of the Bible, and so we are in 1 Corinthians, where Paul earlier had said, it's my desire to know nothing among you except Christ Jesus and him crucified. And then throughout the rest of the book, he's taking the cross and just applying it to really difficult life situations in the church. So we find ourselves here and ourselves here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting with verse 1, reading through verse 11. This is God's word. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge the angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So, if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brothers, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The wisdom of man will wither and fall away, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. Will you pray with me and ask his blessing on his word preached? Lord, this is our desire that by your word and your spirit, you would speak to us today with tremendous power. You've promised that your word will never return to you void without accomplishing all that you intend. It will either harden our hearts this morning or it will make us come alive to the gospel. Maybe some for the first time. Do that work amongst all of us, calling us to your throne of grace to see Christ and him crucified for our sins and then 
teach us and then enable us by your power to walk out the way of the cross in everyday life. For we pray this in the name of the crucified, risen, and reigning Savior. Amen. Well, um, if you're visiting with us today, maybe you aren't a Christian, um, the good news is the church is not a gathering of good people. It's a gathering of sin-broken people who have been made new by Jesus Christ. And that should encourage you. Even if you're not a follower of Jesus, you're like, well, you should hear that and think, well, there's probably a place for me there um, here instead. It's terribly broken people that Jesus has made new in his church. Now, here's the thing. That's an obvious statement if you've been around the church. But it's an obvious statement that I think practically no one actually believes. In the way our hearts practically work out in our daily lives, we get surprised when we find out that's actually true. Because we forget that we're redeemed by a crucified Savior and therefore the shape of the Christian community within the church should always be cruciform. The, the shape of the Christian life and the shape of the community that the cross creates should be always in the shape of the cross. And here's the deal. Here's what I, I find out. It's true in my heart. It's true in, in any conflict that I manage. Pride is always at the heart of our conflicts. But forgetfulness of the cross is always the catalyst for the pride in our conflicts. And so a big part of Paul's pastoral strategy in dealing with things in Corinth and around the churches that he writes to is to remind God's people of the new life that they have in Christ by reminding them of the cross. This is where he goes in verse 11. Paul says about them, And such were some of you. And throughout these two chapters, 5 and and 6, he repeats a phrase over and over again. And do you not know? He's calling them to remember who they are in Christ and what God has done for them. How salvation was accomplished through the cross and then to live that out in everyday life. We've said that the cross is not something that is just at the center of Christianity. That the cross, Christ crucified, is like the sun. It is what everything revolves around and illumines all of life. It is the only thing that gives light to any ethic within the church of Jesus Christ. It is the ethic of the kingdom of God. Do you not know? And such were some of you. Here's the reality that we often find in the church and why I think that almost none of us really believe that it is a community of not good people who have been redeemed by Jesus Christ. Because the fact is that new life in Christ is as unbelievable as it is, and I love that Mark started us out here today, as unbelievable as new life in Christ is, it does not eradicate all the old stuff in our lives. There's still a lot of the old in us. And that actually creates the tension in our lives that we feel as followers of Jesus. The old ways of a sinfully broken world still live in us at the same time that the spirit of the crucified and reigning Jesus also lives within us. And so, to use a word that Paul plays with a lot in this passage, unrighteousness, he starts it, we'll see in verse 1. 
The unrighteousness of the world still infects the righteous people of God. Feel that, don't you? Sort of like day in and day out. All day long, every day. And at the heart of any of the conflicts within any of us, within our marriage, within our children, within each other, pride is at the root, but forgetfulness is the catalyst that drives it. And so here's Paul addressing another problem within the church in Corinth. Christians were taking each other to court over what Paul calls, in verse 1, matters or grievances. It's an interesting choice of words. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of before the saint? It almost carries the sense. It's often, in fact, this is one of the only occasions it's translated with the strong language of grievances. Most of the time, it's just translated as a matter. This thing happened. And, and the root really is like as we're traveling along, something causes us to bump up against each other. And it's just a, a matter, maybe a minor grievance. It's almost like we're, we're moving through life together and you stepped on my foot. I've got a grievance against you. I mean, there's a matter we've got to talk about. But it's just that. It's just a, a minor thing. And Paul is purposely choosing a word that diminishes the type of thing that's going on. And that's part of his strategy. The matter, the grievance, was actually quite serious. It was probably involving something of a great deal of value. Perhaps a property dispute or a business transaction that had not been honored. If you look down into verse 7... To have lawsuits at all is, is already a defeat. Why not rather suffer wrong? Someone was being defrauded. The end of verse 7, again in, in verse 8. right? And the losses were probably whatever is being sued out, whatever the matter or the grievance was, it was probably something a great deal of wealth or property was involved in. But in light of what God has done in Christ... And the crucified Savior, these are just matters or small grievances, minor things. And now they're taking each other to court to solve these matters. And Paul is rebuking them for doing so. In verse 5, he says, outwardly, I say this just in case you're confused about my tone. I say this to your shame. They aren't settling this matter within the church community, but rather taking the grievance to law courts of the land to the unrighteous. And it's not that Paul has a low view of the judicial system within Rome. In fact, in Romans 13, he calls the government God's servants and tells Christians to submit to it. And in light of that, it needs to be said, what Paul doesn't have in mind here in 1 Corinthians 6 is criminal cases. If you've been, these should be taken to the government. If you have been sexually assaulted by another Christian, that should go, that should be reported, that should go to the law courts. A crime has been committed and God has given the state the responsibility of punishing evil and rewarding good. But that's not what they're doing. That's not what's going on here. They are taking each other to the unrighteous courts, to the outside world, to insist that they win 
in grievances against one another. Children, this is like tattling because your brother took your favorite toy. But between adults who are members of Christ's kingdom. Because when you tattle on your brother and sister, it, it usually, at least this is the way it works in my own heart, this is not usually because I want the toy back. It's because I want to win and I want to get them into trouble at the same time. And you see what Paul does, though he shames them, he also reminds them of the tremendous glory that they have in Jesus. A follower of Jesus are kings and queens in this world. Verse 2, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Or then again in verse 3, do you not know that we are to judge the angels? That's the promise that Jesus makes to his people. He makes it to the church in Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3. When he says, to the one that overcomes, I will grant with him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He was the ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And he says it to the apostles in Matthew chapter 19. They're like, Lord, we're going to give up. You're asking us to give up a lot in this life. What's going to happen? And this is his promise. Truly, I say to you, in the new world. When the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on the twelve thrones, judging the tribes of Israel. And that's the church is this unique community that is significant. Because as Jesus was crucified, raised from the dead, and reigning over all creation with all power and authority, He has granted His people the right to reign with Him, the King of all creation and that's what makes the church unique we are seated with Christ now and when the world is burned refined by the fires of God's judgment what will be left is his people seated on thrones reigning judging the nations and even the angels so you see, children, it's so much worse than God's people just tattling on each other. God's people are kings and queens who will inherit the whole earth and reign with Jesus. And we're tattling on each other for what is equivalent to the lint that fell out of the dryer. Because in light of that great responsibility and this honor, these are what he calls in verse 2, Trivial cases. So that even the least wise amongst you should be able to settle these kind of disputes instead of brothers going to law against brothers. Now, we have lawyers in the congregation. It's a good thing. And I think you're going to have to decide. You know, at times you're going to have to decide. You're going to, and especially in a, in, in a town like ours, where there are a lot of people who claim the name of Jesus and call themselves followers of Jesus, and they're going to come to you with lawsuits to settle. And you're going to have to decide, do I take these? And some of you might even have taken up lawsuits against each other to solve a matter or a grievance. And you should walk into the court tomorrow and withdraw it. And rather bring it before the church and ask for help settle this for it. Help, Help us settle this. 
And then maybe if it involves something that needs to be decided by the court, you can take that settlement to the court and say, we need you to ratify this and put it on the books. We've solved this within our own community. But you see, Paul is not sufficient just to give an ethic. It's not, he's not just happy to give an ethic. He's going to go even deeper. Because again, at the heart of this is pride. And the pride manifests itself in this way. We treat the world around us like it exists for our consumption and our pleasure. And when we do that, we live such deeply unsatisfied lives that we will fight about the lint that falls to the floor. And so the deeper problem is, again, pride has met this catalyst of forgetfulness. And so he reminds them again, do you not know? He says it in verse 2, again in verse 3, and then there's this pivotal section that starts in verse 9. Or do you not know? And he does an extensive expansion on the theme in starting in verse 9. We only live this way because we've forgotten the entirety of the gospel. And so in verse 9, he gives us another list of sins. Just like he had done in chapter 5 in addressing sexual immorality. And I said last week this... When sexual sin is listed in the Bible, it is just that. It is listed. God takes sexual sin quite seriously. Sexual holiness is glorious. But Paul takes us an excursion on a long extension in 5, 6, 7 on sexual sin and sexual holiness to take us on a little side route on lawsuits, which seems at first to be a little bit of a strange excursion Until you see what he does in chapter 9, or chapter 6, verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And whenever the biblical writers put together a list of sins, it is to lump together the underlying heart issues. And so what does the reviler, someone who speaks slanderously in order to damage someone else's reputation and the men who practice homosexuality have in common? What does the swindler, someone who attempts to defraud another for monetary gain and the adulterer have in common? What does the sexually immoral have in common with the greedy? We all treat the world like it exists for our pleasure and our consumption. And this is just simply not the way of the cross and therefore not the way of the kingdom of God. And there is no place for this unrighteousness in the kingdom of God. For the kingdom of God is an inherited kingdom. That's the king of God's kingdom doesn't say, I'm going to take what's yours and make it mine. Rather, he says in compassion and mercy, I'm going to take what's mine and make it yours. In our unrighteousness, we take and we take and we take. 
There's no room for that in the kingdom of God. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God because this is not the way of God's kingdom. The, God, the way of God's kingdom says, I'll give you and give you and give you a great expense to me and at no expense to you. That's what an inheritance is. Someone goes out and he earns it for you and then just gives it away. But such were some of you. And so Jesus the king, crucified, risen, reigning, seated on his throne, having all power and authority, says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you my spirit. And as we've been reading through our catechism, the spirit's goal is to take what belongs to Jesus and apply it to his people. And such were, verse 11, such were some of you, but... Isn't that always the hinge of the gospel? But God washed you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. And each one of these is in a verb tense where the recipients just sitting there. Another's doing all the work. But you were washed. And in fact, what's lost in our translation, some of your translations might read it this way. There is actually the word but is before every single one of these in the original language because Paul is just hammering home the contrast. This was, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? You're, we're all consumers that treat the world like it is for our pleasure and consumption. And such were some of you, but... You were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. The Father did this through His Son, and that's not enough. Just to, he make, He's going to make it yours by giving you His Spirit so that what belongs to Jesus becomes yours in not just little bits, all of it. In the mid-1970s, Pol Pot attempted to rid Cambodia of what he considered inferior people. And the list was, it was whimsical and vicious. Vietnamese, Chinese, those who had an education, Christian, Muslims, Buddhists. He just was just like whimsically getting rid of people. It was attempted, it was estimated that there were two million people who died under that extermination. That genocide. One of those prison camps named SR-21 was overseen by Comrade Duch. He personally was responsible for ordering the execution of 14,000 people. A mass murderer guilty of 14,000 murders. That's twice the size of Mount Pleasant. And in the mid-1990s, something remarkable happened to this wicked man. Frail, undignified, stumbled into a church one day, heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and was converted. On that day, he was washed completely and utterly clean of those 14,000 murders. He ordered thoroughly 
washed away. That's the sense of you are washed thoroughly and completely. That mass murderer was set aside as holy by the Lord Jesus Christ and through his spirit. And God called him a saint that day. He was declared righteous before God, the judge of all the earth, because he took the righteousness of Jesus and justified him, made him as righteous as Jesus is righteous. And such were some of you. Duke died a few years ago while serving a lifetime sentence for his war crimes. And when he approached the throne of grace, he did not have to wait for a verdict because he knew the verdict had already come down. And such were some of you. It was noted that many of the Khmer people didn't care about his claim of repentance. His conversion to Christianity, it's written, had made some of the Khmer even angrier with him because by turning to Jesus as his Savior, Duke sought immediate salvation. Had he remained a Buddhist, they would have been happy because he would have had to endure many unhappy lifetimes to expunge all the bad karma he had accumulated. But such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in Christ Jesus our Lord and by his Spirit. It's all of our stories. There's not a single follower of Jesus that that story is not true of. And now as people of the cross, we have to live out of death in order to take the way of the cross. And here's the irony. What Jesus has done has shown us that the way of the cross when lived out amongst our lives, is actually to our great gain. During his trial, instead of defending himself, Duke helped the prosecution prosecute him. When they got the details wrong, he filled in the gaps. Because, he, of course, who had a better understanding of what he actually did than himself? The cross had just turned his life so upside down, instead of taking life out of the gospel he said let me let me help you give back life i'm going to give my power away even though it means great loss but for those who need to prosecute me it will be for your great gain so let me help you because what do i have to lose now i've been washed sanctified and justified what do i have to lose now let me help you prosecute this you see what paul here he's like look when you start treating other Christians by taking them to court, it's a double loss. When you demand your pound of flesh within the court, it's a double loss. Verse 7. Even to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. There's loss of unity and peace with another Christian that Jesus had gone out and earned by the cross to make us one together in his flesh and to give us his spirit. That's a loss. If you're going to fight this out, 
in the court, you've already lost. And you've already lost because you're damaging the name of Jesus to the outside world. You have already reached the point of failure, even if you win the case. Because the only one who wins in the end of that trial is Satan who has succeeded in damaging the peace and unity of the church. Now you might be thinking at this point, well, what am I supposed to do? Let them get away with it? Let them take what's mine? Let them win with their unrighteousness? The people of justice and righteousness, we should stand against these things. Paul... Paul's playing with the word. The answer he gives is yes, you should. Let him get away with it. Let him take what's mine. Because he's playing a word game in this passage. And he's playing around like a a cat playing with a mouse. He's playing around with the word righteous. Verse 1. Dare you go to law with the unrighteous? Verse 9. Don't you know that the unrighteous will inherit the kingdom of God. And then in verse 11, you are justified. That root word there, same root word. Justified person is one who has not earned their righteousness, but been declared in God's courtroom as righteous because the righteousness of Christ is credited to us. So should you go to court against the unrighteous? The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. You are made righteous by God. And then there's another hidden use in verse 7. Why not suffer wrong? It's the same root word. Why not suffer unrighteousness? If in your actions, you're an unrighteous people, but God in his grace has declared you righteous, why not suffer the unrighteousness of another? Listen to what Calvin says. He says, the reason Paul disapproves of lawsuits is that we ought to endure injuries quietly. That, can you imagine like that, how radically that would transform the church of Jesus Christ or even our own marriages, our friendships with one another? Why not be defrauded? You're a king and queen in Christ. What do you have to lose? You didn't gain it. You can't have it stolen from you. Because it would be a greater gain on the other hand. And the greater gain is that I will know Jesus more intimately. If I suffer with him for the sake of others gain. There's depths of the gospel that we will not get until we're willing to go there in our own hearts. So that Paul can say in Philippians 3, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him I can't gain more of his benefits. It's an inheritance that's been given. I've already been washed, sanctified, justified. But what I can gain is a greater experience of his love and my fellowship with him. Here's the thing. So have you ever seen an angry person sow to their anger and produce joy? 
I could tell you story after story of an angry person who crucified their anger for the sake of another who experienced greater joy because of a deeper fellowship with Jesus. I consider it all as loss that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death. That's upside down. Part of the reason we forget these things is because it is so upside down from the way the world works, but you'll find that it actually sets you right side up again. One commentator wrote it this way. At the cross, what looked like utter defeat was actually total victory. The victory of an unquenchable love that even death could not destroy. The question is, did that victory come about by the Lord Jesus standing on his own rights, safeguarding his own interests, and insisting on having it his own way? The answer, of course, is no. But what does the cross teach but that the sacrifice is the road to reconciliation and forgiveness? That's God's way. And any hollow victory that the pagan courts might provide would, in reality, prove to be total and utter spiritual defeat. Because God the Father doesn't look down and say, what do I need to take back from these rebels? But with mercy and compassion, he looks down and he says, what do these rebels need that I alone can provide? And so it is worth losing your possessions, your wealth, your pride, your land in order to maintain the glory of Christ our King and our witness to the manifestation of the crucified and then risen Savior to the world around us. Let me pray for us. Lord, what you ask is more than we could ever do on our own. But in Christ and by his spirit, what is impossible for our flesh is more than possible by your gospel when tended to by your spirit. And so give us repentance when we want to insist on our own way or that we win, but instead, instead, make us a people who treat every relationship and everything that we touch as if it is for the sake of others. If you would do this, if you would do this, for us, then we, in fact, would be a people who experience freedom and joy that the watching world would see. Jesus and his kingdom really is different. And then we would praise you, and so would the nations. And so we pray this in your name. Amen.